Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Friday, December 15th, Israel has been at war for 70 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan arrived in Israel yesterday. He spoke to the Israeli brass who updated him on the war in Gaza. In the future, Jake could negate the need for long-haul flights and jet lag if he would just tune into the morning brief. As you probably know by now, reading all the news so you don't have to, that's what we do. This morning, I'll be briefed uh, by Seth Fransman, an intrepid reporter for the Jerusalem Post and an adjunct fellow here at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. But before we speak to Seth, we are going to take a quick look at what's happening this morning. The fighting drags on in Gaza. The number of fallen soldiers in Israel now stands at 118. The IDF announced this morning that it recovered the bodies of two soldiers and one civilian who were taken captive by Hamas on October 7th. Hamas continues to take a beating. It's gotten so bad that Musa Abu Marzouk, a senior Hamas leader, recently floated the idea that the group could join the PLO, which actually recognizes the state of Israel. It certainly looks to me like the group is looking for lifeline. Amazing what happens when your existence is threatened. The UK and the US issued sanctions jointly against Hamas two days ago. Yesterday, Washington and London teamed up again to slap sanctions on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. It's good to see that transatlantic relationship firing on all cylinders, but there's a lot more needed now to isolate Hamas and its paymasters from the Western banking system. As the saying goes, keep calm and sanction on. The Houthis struck a cargo ship in the Red Sea yesterday. Another vessel was hit today. The Iran-backed militia in Yemen continues to target ships thought to be carrying goods to Israel, and the U.S. Navy is deployed off the coast of Yemen in an effort to prevent these attacks, but there is only so much the U.S. can do, especially when all of our maneuvers are defensive. An Israeli operation in the West Bank town of Jenin has just come to a close after several days of fighting. The IDF reports that 10 terrorists were killed in the fighting. More than 1,200 Hamas operatives have been arrested since October 7th. I continue to watch the West Bank for signs of organized unrest. Okay, so here are your top three big stories to watch today. Headline one, Hezbollah media outlet Al-Mayadeen announced yesterday that an Iran-backed militia launched yet another attack against an American base in Al-Shadadi in northeastern Syria. Here's what we know. According to the latest numbers, Iran-backed groups have attacked U.S. forces more than 90 times since October 17th. You heard that right, 90 times. That's a lot of attacks, and our military has responded to only about a half dozen of those attacks. The rest of the time, no response. So what's next? I'm no Carl von, von Clausewitz, but if your enemy attacks you 90 times and you don't do anything to make them pay for their aggression, you can probably be expected to be attacked again and again and again. I know the White House doesn't want to get sucked into another war in the Middle East, and I know it's an election year, but at what point do we begin to ask about the long-term ramifications of our non-response? The Chinese are watching. The Russians are watching. Heck, our allies are watching. Something needs to change. Headline two, a Hamas terrorist attack was foiled in Europe. Here's what we know. Seven Hamas operatives were arrested in Denmark, the Netherlands, and Germany, 
We're still learning more, but the Israeli Mossad and Shin Bet hailed the Europeans for their, quote, intensive and comprehensive intelligence investigation, end quote. That is high praise coming from the Israelis. So now what? The timing of these announcements is interesting to me. It comes as President Biden has been saying that Israel is isolated on the world stage amidst the ongoing war in Gaza. But it seems to suggest the opposite. In fact, it suggests that multiple European states are working with Israel to target Hamas. And multiple states in Europe, like England and Switzerland and Germany and France, have all taken actions against Hamas financiers in recent days. I know they may not be thrilled with the optics of the war in Gaza. War is not easy to stomach. But it could be, just maybe, that the Europeans see Israel as the good guys in this war. And finally, headline three, the United States is now trying to get Israel to drop the intensity of the war in Gaza. Here's what we know. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan delivered this message personally in Israel yesterday. He wants to see the war fought in phases that could make it easier for the world to digest. The Israelis could have pushed back, but they were demonstrating uncharacteristic restraint. That's because they know that the Biden administration has leverage. The U.S. has been providing huge amounts of munitions to the Israelis from the start of the war. Uncle Sam could withhold those munitions if push comes to shove. So now what? The optics of this are really not pretty. Two months after the worst terrorist attack in Israeli history, two months after the slaughter, rape, and torture of Israeli citizens, the United States is asking the Israelis to exercise restraint in their war against the perpetrator of that attack. But the optics are not even the bigger problem. As FDD CEO Mark Dubowitz has noted, the demands for Israeli restraint may be leading to an uptick in Israeli casualties on the battlefield. The fewer targets the Israelis can hit from the air, the less damage Hamas will sustain, and the more lethal Hamas will be when Israeli soldiers face the group on the battlefield. The Israelis obviously need the United States, but they also need allies that support the notion of a total military victory. They might need to think carefully about producing their own ammo or maybe find some other way of acquiring what they need. Okay, those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Seth Fransman. Seth is an intrepid war reporter and a talented observer of Middle East affairs. He and I have been friends for many years. He is currently with the Jerusalem Post, but he's also an adjunct with us now at FDD. He's kindly agreed to join us here on the FDD Morning Brief. Welcome. Welcome Good to see you. Good to have you with us. So let's jump right in. You were recently up on that northern border. You were touring some of the communities that have been evacuated. What does it look like? What's going on over there? Well, Israel's northern border, it's now almost winter, so it's getting quite cold up there. And there's most of the communities that have been evacuated. So it feels like kind of a ghost town anywhere within several kilometers of the border all the communities are basically empty of most of the people that lived in them there's some men have stayed behind to guard them and you have a lot of army units that have basically moved into those communities so they're populated in a sense because they have soldiers in them now instead of civilians but when you drive along these these kind of lonely roads that used to be a huge area for tourism in israel you feel this kind of overwhelming threat that Hezbollah has basically brought down the north. There's been basically daily attacks. There was just an attack recently about an hour ago in a, a, on a Bedouin community up there called Arwal Ramshe. And they use uh, anti-tank uh, missiles to target civilian cars, to target the IDF. And it's really unprecedented in Israel's history that to kind of evacuate you know, 40 communities on the border. Israel's north has been under attack 
you know, back in the day in the late 70s and 80s. And this is a totally different policy. So when I've been up there, I've met with some of the local people and they described, you know, how many years ago, decades ago, they used to be able to go into Lebanon and do shopping or they used to even play soccer when they were kids with the Shiite villages across the way. But now the area is really feels like a war zone and it feels like it's just waiting for the next phase. Yeah, it's uh, tough. And, and you hear about it all the time in Israeli media about how unacceptable it is that these communities have been forced to move. Um, let me ask, I mean, Hezbollah has suffered more than 100 losses so far. That's according to their reporting. I, I think they've lost a lot more. Um, in fact, some uh, Hezbollah operatives were reportedly killed in an IDF strike this morning in response to that attack that you just mentioned. But from what you could tell, with your observations on that border, do you think that this Iran-backed terror group is ready for the big one with Israel? I mean, do you think they're 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 fully mobilized for war? I don't think Hezbollah is exactly fully mobilized. I mean, you have to remember that Hezbollah spent a lot of time fighting in Syria over the last decade or so, so it gained a lot of experience, but it also lost it lost people. And Hezbollah doesn't have an endless supply of young men, because it has to recruit among Shiites in Lebanon, and those people are a minority. So. I think that Hezbollah, you know, it doesn't want to be dragged into this war. It is, of course, a very powerful Iranian proxy. Many of the key uh, other, let's say, parts of that network that Hezbollah used to work with back in 2006 against Israel, working with the Iranians, some of those key people have been killed, like Imam Mugni and other key terrorists, like Qasem Soleimani. So, you know, Hezbollah is kind of the last man standing here. And I think that it it certainly has lost a bunch of people, as you've seen in these, these kind of tit-for-tat attacks with Israel. Israel has not lost 115 people up there. So Hezbollah is suffering. It's lost some elite members, I think, of some of its best units. And it has to wonder whether or not it's willing to go to war and basically be destroyed and lose out on 20 years of terrorist infrastructure that it's, it's embedded everywhere along the border. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we always talk about Hezbollah as the ultimate protector of the Iranian regime itself. And, and I think there is a theory out there that uh, Hezbollah will only really want to go to war with Israel at that moment when Iran makes a dash for the uh, for the for the bomb, right? When when they actually make that move for a nuclear weapon, and that could be what they're waiting for. And this could just be a lot of posturing, but it could be something a lot worse. And uh, to that point, I mean, you've embedded with the IDF up nor up north. You've been watching the Israeli units train for war. What does that look like? I mean, what, what has your experience been as, as you've been watching the IDF operating in what is already a war zone? Sure. So basically, when the Hamas attacked on October 7th, it was a huge and unprecedented attack. But there was a lot of concern in Israel that, you know, this was just the first move of what was going to then be a second front where Hezbollah would also attack. So when Israel called up 300,000 people to its reserves, it sent half of them up north. And it also sent a lot of the Air Force and other assets basically to keep watch on Hezbollah and deter them. So when what we've seen is that all those reservists scrambled basically to take over a whole area along the line up there and prepare for what might come next. And then they sat basically for two months now being shot at by Hezbollah. Israel returns fire. But imagine being a soldier who's sitting on the border so the enemy can shoot at you when at a time and place of their choosing. And then artillery or aircraft might respond, but you basically have to sit there and wait. So they, those soldiers have suffered, in a sense, two months of waiting. Now what Israel's done has been taking them off the line and rotating them in so that they can train them and then put them back. So I spent time training. And what they do is they train basically infantry, 
and armored units, tanks, and bulldozers and engineers to basically advance quickly to take a whole bunch of phase objectives. And we basically you know, ran alongside the infantry and watched them blow things up and use live, live fire and basically conquer, in a sense, a mock village with tanks coming in from the flanks and, and taking the village and using the best weapon systems that you know Israel has and the new technology it has to knit together all those units so that the communications and everything flow efficiently. All right, I'm going to ask you in a second about the diplomatic process, but militarily, if you were to use a crystal ball, what do you think happens next in the north? How, how do things proceed in the next couple of days or even couple of weeks? Well, I think that Israel has basically vowed to make sure that Hezbollah will not be sitting on the border, at least with a physical presence of flying its flags and stuff, because many of the civilians that were evacuated have said they don't really want to go back if they have to see that. And they won't go back if there's going to be anti-tank fire every day against their cars. That means Israel has to change the equation up there somehow. Currently, Israel's fighting Gaza. It doesn't want a two-front conflict. But, it, the, but the point is that Israel wants the pressure out there, especially by the U.S. or France or others, to get Hezbollah to move back from the border. Hezbollah has shown that it's not going to go anywhere. And not only that, in the last year, Hezbollah has done a whole bunch of escalations in the wake of the maritime deal last year against areas like Mount Dover, what's called the Sheva Farms. So in terms of a crystal ball, I think at the end of the day, Iran wanted to redraw the equation in the north and basically give Hezbollah the impunity to attack Israel whenever it wants, which it didn't have in the past, much like Iran has done in the Red Sea with the Houthis. And Israel, that's intolerable for Israel. So something has to change, but I don't think anyone wants a massive war. And I'm sure the international community doesn't want you know, southern Lebanon be, to be destroyed. Okay, to that point, there's been a lot of talk about reviving the UN Security Council Resolution 1701 from 2006, uh, including a possible deal that leads to a Hezbollah withdrawal south of the Latani River. Jake Sullivan talked about this just a few hours ago. Does that seem feasible to you? I mean, given the fact that Hezbollah had, had ample opportunities since 2006 to observe UN resolutions, to invest money uh, in businesses or education or banks or art or something. And Hezbollah did what Hamas has done, which it spent all of its resources to, to hollow out Lebanon, to destroy Lebanon from within, to bankrupt Lebanon, to stockpile masses of missiles and PGMs and, and build up bunkers and terrorist infrastructure. There's just no evidence that Hezbollah has ever sought to change or shift strategy. And every time we were told in the past, such as with the maritime deal uh, with Lebanon and Israel last year, well, you see, this Hezbollah will become a stakeholder, and now Lebanon will become wealthy with all its energy resources, and everyone will be happy. There's just no evidence that it ever happens. What Hezbollah does is it thinks Israel's weak every time something like that happens, and it tries to just keep pushing forward. So I can't imagine a scenario in which in which Hezbollah ever changes, uh, or Iran, which backs them, obviously, ever changes, because Iran feels that it's on the winning side. It feels that time is on its side, and it is inflaming the region, as you noted before, they carried out 90 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. So there's just, I just don't think there's any evidence that any of these types of running groups will ever change. All right, we'll keep tracking that. Thank you, Seth, for joining us today. Here are the, store, the other stories that FDD is following today. Uh, my colleague Brad Bowman has just visited the headquarters of U.S. Central Command and U.S. Southern Command this week in Florida. These are the military command centers that track threats to the U.S. and our allies in the Middle East and Latin America. The military is working to coordinate the American response to China, 
Iran and Russia beyond the regions that we usually associate with these adversaries. My colleague, Ruel Markarek, a former Middle Eastern targets officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, is out with a piece in the dispatch assessing the capabilities of the security and intelligence services after 10-7. He looks at the failings in Israel, but also in Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority. Everyone seemed to have missed the warning signs of the 10-7 attack. And finally, my colleague Rich Goldberg is out with a cover essay for Commentary Magazine on the five things that must not happen the day after the war in Gaza. You'll recognize some familiar themes from topics that we have covered here on The Morning Brief. On that same topic, FDD Senior International Fellow and former Israeli National Security Advisor Eyal Hulata sat down this week with former Palestinian Authority Advisor and Negotiator Gaithal Omri in a conversation moderated by Nahal Tusi of Politico. I encourage you to check out that video and transcript if you missed it. That's at FDD.org. Actually, you can check out all of our terrific work at FDD.org. Follow our spot analysis on X at FDD. And please do make that tax-deductible contribution before the end of 2023 at FDD.org invest. You can join us every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for more FDD morning briefs. Tune in on Monday for my interview with former UN ambassador and national security advisor, John Bolton. Conversations with him are never dull. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD.